I was reminded this week of an old song called The Love of God. And I want to read you a line from one of the verses. I think this is one of the most beautiful verses I've ever heard. And it's not a very well-known hymn. But here's what it says. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made were every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky over and over the Bible tells us that God's love is incomprehensible. It is infinite. It is unending. God is an overflowing, bottomless fountain of love. And I don't know about you, but for me, that's not hard to believe about God's power. God's power is infinite. Of course it is. I mean, you look at the universe. What type of being could just speak, boom, the, un the universe exists? Or God's knowledge. Of course he's all-knowing. How do you just invent creatures, living creatures? I mean, he must be the most infinitely intelligent being. It's not hard to believe about his holiness. God is infinite in holiness. He must be pure and perfect and righteous, the source of goodness. But love... God is infinite in love. That's what the Bible says. That's a different type of character. Do you believe that? Last week we looked at how one of the authenticating signs that a person has become a Christian, one of the hallmarks of someone who's genuinely been born again is that they rejoice in suffering. They rejoice in affliction. Paul explains why. He says because suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character. Character produces hope. And this hope won't disappoint us. Why? He says in verse 5, because God's love has been poured into our hearts. That's why. In other words, suffering for Jesus, rejoicing in that suffering, can only be motivated by God's love. That's the idea. Which means the person who rejoices in suffering is a person who knows God's love. Which means a Christian is a person who knows God's love. So here's the big idea from our text this morning. You see this woven throughout the Bible, but it's this. The love of God is both the goal of life and the source of life for all humanity. The love of God is both the goal of life and the source of life for all humanity. So this is God's design. What you were made for, the reason you exist is to know God in relationship. It is to have his love, to experience his love. And that is where your life is derived. So in a world... You look around, you say, well, that's not what's going on in our world today. People just knowing God, loving God, receiving God's love. In a world broken by sin, cursed with death, where do we get life? Where does the power for eternal life and freedom from sin come from? Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 3. Verse 17, he says, I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width height and depth 
of God's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, what does that mean? Being filled with all the fullness of God. Well, it means a lot more than this, but it certainly doesn't mean less than becoming a Christian. It means receiving his righteousness. It means being justified. It means being forgiven. All the things Paul's talking about up to this point in Romans. And how does this happen? How do you get filled with all the fullness of God? He says, it's as as you know the love of Christ. This is how it happens. As you know the love of Christ, as you comprehend it, as you understand it and experience it more and more. And so this is what Paul prays for. He says, I'm praying that you would know Christ's love, which surpasses knowledge, and you would comprehend God's love that is incomprehensible. God's love is that important. It is the vital ingredient to human flourishing. Without God's love, think about this, there is no salvation. Without God's love, there is no forgiveness. There is no eternal life. There is no hope apart from God's love. So here's the big question from Romans 5, 6 through 11. How can you be sure that God loves you? How can you be sure that God loves you? This is a question that every person wrestles with. Does God love me? In different ways, different forms, different situations, for different reasons. Can God love me? How can God love me when I've done this? Or does God love me when this is going on in my life? And it's a question that is not just a question non-Christians wrestle with. This is a question that many, many Christians wrestle with. And here's why this is so important. If Ephesians 3 is true, then what that means is the less confident you are that God loves you, the less your life will look like Jesus. And the more confident you are that God loves you, the more your life will look like Jesus. The less confident you are that God loves you, the less joy you will have. Seems fairly intuitive. The more confident you are God loves you, the more joy you will have. The less confident you are that God loves you, the easier you will be to be deceived and tempted to sin. The more confident you are God loves you, the more guarded your heart and mind will be against lies and temptations. So knowing the love of God is incredibly important. You could say it's everything in the Christian life. So how can you be sure God loves you? Paul gives three lines of evidence that point Christians to the love of God. So this is going to serve as our outline this morning. He gives us the experience of God's love, the event of God's love, and the effect of God's love. So how can you be sure God loves you? First, through the experience of God's love. He says this in verse 5, this hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. If you are a Christian, the most obvious and experiential display of God's love is that he has given you the Holy Spirit. He's given you his spirit. Now, what does that mean? Let me give you four facts about the Holy Spirit. Number one, upon conversion, every Christian is given the Holy Spirit. Paul already implies this in verse 5. He says, God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given. Past tense. Already happened. Was given to us. Who's us? It's Christians. 
Upon conversion, every Christian is given the Holy Spirit. He says this in Ephesians 1.13. In him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. So when do you get the Holy Spirit if you're a Christian? When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. Upon conversion, every Christian is given the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God by definition. Now, what does that mean exactly? Second fact, the Spirit of God lives in the heart of every Christian. Okay, God gives it to me, gives Him to me. What does that mean? It means that the Spirit of God Himself comes and lives in the heart of every Christian. Paul talks about this at length in Romans 8, but he says this in Galatians 4, 6. Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So having the Spirit of God, like having faith in Christ, it is an invisible, internal reality. God himself, the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, lives inside of you, in your heart, Paul says, if you're a Christian. Now because it's invisible, internal, how can you be sure of the presence of the Holy Spirit? How are we as Christians meant to experience the Holy Spirit? Fact number three, the Spirit of God is a person with a ministry. The Spirit of God is a person with a ministry. I think many people are confused by this. The Spirit of God is not a force. It's not some ethereal, mystical thing in the air that has supernatural power. It is a person. He is a person with a ministry. Listen to what Jesus says in John 16, 7. Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross, and he's going to be resurrected. He's going to ascend back into heaven, and he's preparing his disciples for his departure. And here's what he says in verse 7. It is for your benefit that I go away, because if I don't go away, the counselor, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. Now imagine being the disciples here for a second. Jesus is the greatest man who's ever lived. He is the most profound, charismatic, engaging, informative, instructive teacher who's ever lived. He's the wisest and most intelligent and most courageous leader. He's the most compassionate, kind, gentle counselor. There's nobody like Jesus. You've never met anyone like Jesus, another human being in person. There's nobody who comes even close. He was the most dynamic person who's ever lived. And on top of that, he has undeniable supernatural power. And the disciples were hanging out with him every day. And he's healing thousands of people. And not just healing them of stomach aches, blindness, leprosy, lame. They can't walk from birth. He's raising people from the dead. He's casting out demons. On top of that, he's performing a variety of other miracles. He turns water into wine, and he feeds the 5,000, and he calms the storm, and he walks on water. I mean, Jesus is obviously the Messiah, the Son of God. And he looks at his disciples here, and he says, listen, guys, it's going to be better for you if I leave. Could you imagine being there? And you're thinking, what? (laughs) Like, what are you talking about, Jesus? Why? He explains, because if I don't leave, I can't send the Spirit, and you're going to be way better off with Him, with the Spirit, 
That's what Jesus says. And he explains why. Just like Jesus had a ministry, the Spirit has a ministry. So Jesus, you have to think about this. Jesus is the Son of God, eternally begotten from the Father, second member of the Trinity, but in his condescension, he clothed himself with human flesh. So even though Jesus is fully God, he's also fully human, which means in his earthly ministry, Jesus was limited. He had limited time. He had limited relational capacity. He could only be at one place at a time. The Spirit doesn't have any of those limitations. The Holy Spirit, just like Jesus, is God, but the Holy Spirit is not a man. And so through the Spirit, the ministry of Jesus could extend beyond his circle. About 120 disciples, the 12 that he's really focused on developing as leaders, and it could go beyond that to the whole world. And that means one of the signs that the Spirit of God lives in you is that your life should look like the life of somebody who walked with Jesus in person in the first century. Now, look specifically at what Jesus says the Holy Spirit does. There's more than this, but this is just a quick overview. In John 14, 26, Jesus tells us that the Holy Spirit, he teaches and reminds Christians of the teachings of Jesus. In John 15, 26, Jesus tells us he testifies to the saving work of Jesus. In John 16, 8, Jesus tells us he convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. In John 16, 13, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will guide disciples of Jesus into all truth. One of the signs of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian is growing clarity about the gospel and growing confidence in the gospel. I've known many people who've gone to church for years and years and years. They claim to be Christians. They could tell you, yeah, Jesus died on the cross to pay for my sins, but they have almost no clarity about the gospel. Explain to me, how does somebody go to heaven? How could I, if I was not a Christian and I said, hey, could you explain to me, how can I know God? How can I have my sins forgiven? How can I go to heaven when I die? You ask them and they can't explain it. They have no clarity about the gospel. And I'm not saying that that makes somebody not a Christian, but I am saying if you've been a Christian for years and you're not growing in your understanding of the gospel, your ability to articulate it, explain it, apply it to different circumstances and situations, that should bother you because that's part of what the Holy Spirit does in your life. He gives you greater clarity and confidence in the gospel. Another sign of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer is a growing hunger for God's Word in the Bible. And, just as importantly, a growing understanding of what the Bible means. This is part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He will guide disciples of Jesus into all truth. That means proper Bible interpretation. That's something that you should see growing in your life by the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And this is exactly what you see in the lives of the disciples. So when you read the Gospels, what you see is that the 12, the disciples of Jesus, rarely did they understand what Jesus was talking about. Rarely. Most of the time they're clueless. Some of the time they understand, but even then they usually miss a little bit. And their character is not great. They're, they're cowards. 
They're bickering among each other about who's the greatest, jockeying for position so they get greater honor in the ministry of Jesus. They didn't understand that Jesus had to suffer and die and rise from death. They certainly didn't understand how any of that connected with the prophecies about him in the Old Testament. But then you get to the book of Acts, and everything changes. In the book of Acts, Peter and James and John, they're like the greatest theologians who've ever lived. I mean, all of a sudden, they're, they're bold Bible expositors. They're full of courage. They have incredible insight into the proper interpretation of the Old Testament. They're theological geniuses. And you're like, what happened here? What changed? They received the Holy Spirit. That's what changed. Number four, one of the Holy Spirit's primary ministries is to pour the love of God into the heart of a Christian. This is what Paul says in Romans 5, and he reiterates this in Romans 8. Verse 15, he says, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom, Spirit of God is a person, it's not a thing, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. One commentator wrote this, there is little, if any, significant difference between being assured of God's fatherhood and of his love. This is part of what the Holy Spirit does, is he assures you of God's love for you. You experience God's love for you through the work in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He gives you comfort. He gives you confidence. He gives you peace in your relationship with, it, with your heavenly Father. And it's interesting, this is not just a New Testament concept. This was the experience of the saints in the Old Testament. You see this particularly in the Psalms. I've been studying through Psalm 119 recently. I came to verse 61, and I don't have time to explain the whole background and context here, but let me just show you this quickly. Psalm 119, 61, David writes, Though the ropes of the wicked were wrapped around me, I did not forget your instruction. Then he says this in 64, Lord, the earth is filled with your faithful love. Teach me your statutes. And I read that and I thought, how can David in the same breath say the cords of the wicked are wrapped around me? My circumstances are bad. Life is difficult. You go and you read the story of the life of David, early in his life, he's being chased around by Saul. He's trying to kill him. He's hiding in caves, running for his life. Even though he goes out of his way to honor Saul as the king and God's anointed one. And he looks at the world, and, and it's not that he doesn't see evil. He says, the cords of the wicked are wrapped around me. He acknowledges there's darkness, there's sin, there's pain in the world, and he acknowledges how it's personally impacting him, and yet he's able to say, the earth is filled with your love. Not just, man, I can see it through the darkness, kind of twinkling through like starlight. That's not what he says. He says it's pervasive it's everywhere. The love of God is everywhere. It fills the whole world. How can he have that perspective? Well, it must be that he sees beyond the pain, beyond the sin, beyond the rebellion, beyond the darkness, 
and he sees God's mercy. He sees God's patience. He sees God's promise of redemption woven through all of it. Now, how how could David see that? Because it's not that he just is putting on rose-colored glasses, just positive mental attitude. (laughs) When you look at the life of David, the writings of David, it's because David understood the Scriptures. David understood the promises of God. David understood the redemptive purposes of God, which he could only understand through the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit in his heart. So here's a question to consider. Are you regularly able to see and feel God's love in spite of difficult circumstances? That's an important question to really think about. Don't just answer that flippantly. Oh yeah, for sure. God loves me. Jesus died for me. Can you remember a time recently where you were able to cognitively understand, see, and feel comforted by, encouraged by, secure in the love of God in spite of difficult circumstances. It's very, very important. That is the evidence of the Holy Spirit working in you. How else can you be sure that God loves you? We've got the experience of God's love. Next, Paul gives us the event of God's love. Verse 8, he says, But God proves His own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There is a subjective, internal experience of God's love. And that's important. It actually is very important. I think we tend to poo-poo that a little bit. (laughs) Evangelicals. We just think, oh, you know, we have, we've got the word, we've got the facts, we've got the apologetics, we've got the theology, we've got the doctrine, we've got church history. Those things are monumentally important. But your experience, your internal subjective experience of God's love is actually important, but there is also an objective fact of God's love, which is equally important, which is proven at the cross of Christ. And you need both. You need both. So how can you be sure that God loves you? Paul says, because Jesus died for you. It's that simple. (laughs) Because Jesus died for you. Well, how does that prove God's love? John Stott, in his commentary on Romans, says, the essence of loving is giving. I think that's probably oversimplified. But there's a lot of truth to that. The essence of loving is giving, which means the amount of God's love has at least two metrics. The first is the cost of the gift of His grace. If the essence of love is giving, one way to measure love is how much did you give? That's the idea. What did it cost God to love you? Well, Paul says it cost Him His only Son. What does that mean? Paul wants to make sure that we're clear about what he means, so he's very explicit. Verse 10, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Through the death of his son. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus died so you could live. Jesus, even though he was innocent, took your guilt and died in your place. Jesus on the cross took the punishment you deserve for your sin. Why did he do that? so you could be made righteous, so you can go free, so you can escape punishment in hell and be reconciled to God 
in relationship in heaven. But it cost him everything. It cost God everything. He gave his only son. It cost Jesus his very life. Jesus couldn't have given any more. Think about Jesus sitting on the throne of glory for all of eternity past, and he becomes a human baby, born in a barn to teenage peasants in the first century. (laughs) There's no Wi-Fi. There's no indoor plumbing. Jesus condescended. He became a human being, and then he died as a criminal, disgraced on a cross. He couldn't have given any more. But there's a second metric for measuring God's love. It's not just the cost of the gift. It is also the worthiness of the recipient. The worthiness of the recipient. Paul wants us to understand our worthiness to receive this gift in relation to the cost. He says in verse 7, For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. What does that mean? Well, here's the idea. Even if somebody's innocent in the eyes of the law, let's say there's a person, they're totally innocent, they get wrongly accused, and they're facing the death penalty. Probably nobody here is going to say, hey, I'll die in their place. They didn't actually do it. This is a tragedy. I'll step in. Paul says nobody's going to do that. (laughs) Even if they're innocent, you're not going to die in their place. You might feel bad for them. But he says maybe, though, maybe if someone was not only innocent but particularly good, a particularly good, kind, impactful person, maybe you would step in and die for them. So imagine, if you can, for a second, that we could time travel to Ford's Theater, April 14th, 1865. You know what happened there? This is the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Imagine you could time travel, and moments before John Wilkes Booth shoots Abraham Lincoln, you could step in front of the gun and take the bullet. There's way more people who would say, I'm in for that. I would give my life to save Abraham Lincoln. Because why? He's an incredibly impactful, influential person in human history for good. He's uniquely influential for good in the world, in human history. And so there's more people would say, yeah, I would die for someone like that. But even most of us probably wouldn't. But then he says this, verse 7, or verse 8, but God proves his own love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 6 says, we were ungodly. Verse 10 says, we were enemies of God. So this would be like going back in time to Ford's Theater, and instead of stepping in front of the bullet to save Abraham Lincoln, you say, hey, my life for John Wilkes Booth. I'll die for him after he assassinated Abe Lincoln. That's what God is doing. Now, why would anybody do that? Paul says, it's because of love. And you're thinking, that doesn't even make any sense. <laughs> what does that mean? It almost, it almost strips love of its meaning to explain it that way. It does make sense. It does make sense. Here's how it makes sense. I've been thinking about this this week, and I've been doing this thought experiment at the prompting of the Apostle Paul, and I have to be honest with you, I don't think I could give my life even for a good person. Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, Abraham Lincoln, 
I'd like to think I'm courageous enough, I'm selfless enough. Yes, I would give my life for someone like that. When push comes to shove, probably not. Maybe, I mean, maybe we'd have to actually be in the situation. There's all kinds of things you'd have to factor in, but I don't know if I could do it. But here's what I know for sure. I know, I don't even have to hesitate for a second. I know I would give my life for any of my kids. I don't, even have to th- I don't even have to think about it. You parents know what I'm talking about. Now, think about it this way. My kids are really young. And I thought about this. If God forbid, years from now, one of my children was a rebellious, terrible person who hated God and hated me and said, Dad, I don't want anything to do with you. Don't ever talk to me again. If I had to, I would for sure still die for them in that situation. I don't even have to think twice about it. <laughs> I mean, I would, I would die for my kids. Some of you know way better what I'm talking about than I do. Some of you have adult children who are struggling badly, not following Christ. And I'm confident you're thinking, yeah, of course, I'd die for my, my children, even if they're rebellious. Why? Why, why is that in us as parents? It's just love. It's just because of love. We have this overflowing, overwhelming, overpowering love for our children. Jesus died for you when you were guilty and sinful, not good or even innocent. Now, to be really clear, apart from Christ, you were not yet adopted as God's children. Okay? So I want to be clear about that. You were his enemies. So I'm kind of mixing metaphors here. We are not adopted as God's children until we're born again, until we have his Holy Spirit. The reason I use that analogy is to illustrate how someone could die for someone who hates them. It's just a picture of the strength of God's love. His love, it's not like our love. It's something altogether different. We can just get a little glimpse of it in our own relationships. But the death of Jesus on the cross proves God's love. How else can you be sure of God's love? Lastly, Paul gives us the effect of God's love. He says in verse 9, How much more then, since we have now been justified by His blood, will we be saved through Him from wrath? For, for, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by His life? So this is an example of what theologians call the already not yet of the New Testament, of the gospel. So Paul's saying if you're a Christian, you've already been justified by the blood of Jesus. You've already been pronounced innocent in the eyes of God through the death of Jesus. That happened upon your conversion, past tense. But Jesus hasn't come back to judge the world yet. So you have not yet experienced the fullness of that justification. You're going to actually stand before him in judgment on that day and be pronounced innocent, accepted, loved by God, a child of God. And you won't experience the fullness of that until that day. Also, Paul says you've already been reconciled to God in relationship. It's already happened, past tense. He is currently, if you're a Christian, your heavenly father. You are adopted into his family. You have peace with him now. You are loved by him now, but you've not yet seen him face to face in glory. You haven't been resurrected in your new body. 
in a new world. That day is coming. And here I think is the big idea of what Paul's trying to get at. Confidence in resurrection salvation, eternal security, that not yet aspect of your salvation is rooted in the experience of relational reconciliation to God. I think that's the point he's trying to make. Confidence in resurrection salvation or eternal security is rooted in the experience of relational reconciliation to God. Now, this is important. Notice I said confidence, not the fact of it. So, the fact of your salvation is rooted in the gospel. It doesn't depend on you at all. It doesn't depend on your experience. <laughs> it is grounded in what God did for you and what God promises you in Christ. But your confidence in it, your experience of it, your subjective assurance of it correlates to your walk with the Lord, your relational knowledge of His love, your experience of Him day-to-day in relationship. And so there's this reciprocal thing that is happening in the Christian life. Part of how you know God loves you is you have a joy-filled confidence in the hope of heaven. And where you get that confidence is through knowing the love of God. It's like two pedals on a bike. Verse 11. He says, not only that, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. Why should Christians get excited about the gospel? You ever think about this? What's the best part about the gospel? I think what Paul's getting at here is that it is not ultimately the forgiveness of your sin. It's not ultimately that you have the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not even ultimately that you have the hope of eternal life. Those are all just aspects of the main goal of the gospel, which is that you get God himself. We boast in God. We don't boast in our forgiveness. We don't boast in our justification. We don't boast in the fact that we have eternal life. We boast in God. You get Him. You get to have Him. You get to know Him. You get to experience His love in relationship. We boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what do we do with all of this? I want to give you one quick application. Remember, all this ties back into Paul's statement that Christians rejoice in affliction. Christians rejoice in suffering. Why? Because suffering gives us greater knowledge of the love of Jesus. That's where all this stems from. So here's my encouragement to you this week. Pursue greater knowledge of the love of Jesus. Pursue greater knowledge of the love of Jesus. Now, just to be clear... You can't get any more of the love of Jesus than you already have. If you're in Christ, you have it in infinite, overflowing, unending supply. You cannot possibly get more of the love of Jesus if you're in Christ. But you can know more of the love of Jesus. How do you do that? Three ways. First, through prayer. This is what Paul does. This is Paul's strategy in Ephesians 3. He says, I pray that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height, and depth of God's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. How can you know something that's unknowable? And how can you comprehend something that's incomprehensible? Well, this is part of the work of the Holy Spirit. And so if we want the Holy Spirit to help us understand and know God's love, we need to ask Him by faith, in prayer, Pray constantly 
Pray this for yourself. Pray it for other people that we would know God's love more and more and more. And it would change us. It would overwhelm us. Pursue greater knowledge of the love of Jesus through suffering. John 17, Jesus, as he is preparing to go to the cross, says in verse 1, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. Verse 5, he says, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. Here's something I've been thinking about. The moment where God's glory was seen the brightest and clearest in all of human history was at the cross. So what's about to happen here? It says, Jesus says, the hour has come. The hour for what? He's going to die. And he's saying, God, this is the moment. Glorify me. Glorify me in this moment. For Jesus, the lowest point of humiliation is the highest point of his glory. Now, why is that? I think it's because it is the clearest demonstration of his love. That's why. The power of God, the glory of God, is more clearly seen in the cross of Christ even than in the event of creation. And that is mind-blowing. That totally breaks the human paradigm for love, the human paradigm for greatness. And this is why Christians need to be so radically centered on the cross. If you want to go deeper into the love of Jesus, you need to follow him where he went. You need to be prepared to suffer. Now, how do you do that? Through loving others the way Jesus loves. Ephesians 5.1, Paul says, Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. If you want to know the love of Jesus, not just cognitively, but experientially, begin to love people who are not worthy of your love in ways that are costly. This is what the Apostle Paul did. He says, in Philippians 3, he says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Why did Paul want to suffer for Christ? Because he knew that's where I'm going to experience more of his love. I'm going to know more of his love as I love people the way he did. Just one example of what that might look like in 2 Corinthians 5. Paul says, therefore, since we know the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people. For if we are out of our mind, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us. Since we've reached this conclusion that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. Big part of loving people has to do with persuading them of the truth of the gospel. And they don't have to be a non-Christian. Evangelism is part of this, but it's discipleship. We're going to worship God. We're going to run towards Him in worship and sacrifice, not storing up treasures for ourselves on this earth. And we want to get people and say, hey, run with us. Worship Him with us. We're going to try to persuade you in love through the Scriptures by the power of the Holy Spirit. But that will lead to suffering. 
but it will also lead to greater love of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text this morning. God, to try to describe your love um, would just feel so inadequate to do it. Um, but I thank you, Lord, that you can use, you can use a 40-minute sermon. You can use just this little bit of effort that we have put forth to come together and worship you by hearing from you in your word. And you can turn that into greater understanding of your love. And Lord, we pray that you would do that. God, we want to know you more. We want to understand your love for us more. We want to be captivated by it more. God, we want to be moved to worship you because of your love more and more. That's what I pray, Lord, that we would understand it even though it's not understandable, that we would know it even though it's not knowable, God, that we would be a church filled with Christians who are utterly captivated by the love of Jesus. God, we pray this in your precious son's name. Amen.